Grab a seat if you would. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab uh, that right now. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6. If you've got a Bible with you, listen online. I want to welcome those of you tuning in tonight. Glad you're here with us, whether you are a young adult or not. I'm thrilled that you're leaning in with us tonight. We're going to start a new teaching series tonight. And if you've not been with us before, if you're newer to church, what we tend to do is we tend to take a number of weeks. Sometimes it's four, sometimes it's six, um, sometimes a little longer to either look at a book of the Bible or a subject in the Bible that we think is important for us to talk about. Uh, tonight, we're going to start this new teaching series. And we're going, to start, we're going to be talking for the next four weeks, all the way up until Thanksgiving, on the subject of money. Of money. Now, here's what I've learned as a pastor. There are two topics no one wants to hear a pastor talk about. It is sex and it is money. I've also learned this as a pastor. There are no two subjects that mess up your life like sex and money, right? Like, so that's what we're going to do over the next four weeks. We're going to talk about money. And here's what some people immediately think when I say we're going to talk about money. They go, uh-oh, church is in trouble. And they like put their hand on their wallet just in case there's like an usher coming by to be like, hey, you know, like, but like, this is some of your fears. And here's what I want you to know. Like, we're going to talk for four weeks about money. This is not a four-week series on giving. We're going to talk in the fourth week about giving the week before Thanksgiving. I want you to be there. I want you to come. If you're afraid to come on the week before we talk about giving, that probably says something about your heart that you need to wrestle through with the Lord. Okay? But we're going to talk about money for four weeks. And I need you to know it's not because the church is in trouble and we're desperate for money. But like, can you imagine how silly that circumstance would be? If the church was like, we're behind by like a million dollars. And I went... I got a plan. I know a group of people, 300 or so, very young, very cool people. Some of them can afford Taco Bell, all right? Some of them. And others, the really wealthy among them, can probably skate right with a few Chick-fil-A a, a week. You know, like, like, like I need you to know this. This isn't like something where the church is desperate for money and then we're like, we'll just like wring the young adults dry and then like see what that does. That's not what this is. Like Brian Williams, Pastor Brian Williams, who was up here earlier, was talking earlier. He had a good word about this. Here's what he said. Like the goal of this series is not to open your wallet. The goal of this series is to open your heart. The goal of this series is to do something to your heart because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm going to say this tonight, and I think some of you are going to utterly disagree with this, and I intend to spend the rest of this series proving that this is true. Here's what I want to tell you. That the way you think about money is as important to your spiritual life as the way you think about prayer. The way you think about money is as important to your spiritual life as the way you think about prayer. And again, you're going to hear that, and maybe initially you go, I'm not so certain about that. But here's what I want to suggest to you, that if you get money right, if you understand how you earn it, how you spend it, how you give it, how you invest it, how you think about it, this will be as significant, if not for some of you more significant, than how you figure out prayer in your life. But let me put it to you this way to illustrate. I got a question for you, and you don't have to answer this out loud. This isn't like Bible trivia night, okay? But this is a question for you to ponder. How many Bible verses do you think there are about faith and prayer in the scriptures? 66 books in the Bible. How many Bible verses do you think there are specifically about faith and prayer? And the answer, for those who kind of worked this out, it's kind of an estimate. The answer is about 500. 500. 66 books, 500 times the Bible is going to talk about faith it's going to talk about prayer. Here's the next question for you. How many Bible verses are there about money and possessions? Maybe you have an answer for that. Maybe you're not sure what the answer is. Good thing I brought the answer tonight. Here's the answer. 2,350. All right, listen to me. 
If you think faith and prayer is a central aspect to what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a man or woman of faith in this world, you need to understand that the scriptures talk about money and possessions almost five times as much as it does about faith and prayer. And that's not to say faith and prayer isn't central. It's to say that faith and prayer is something you're really easy and wanting to talk about. Money and possessions is one of those things you ignore, but listen to me, you ignore to your peril, to your peril. Tonight, I want to set us up with this scripture, and we're going to kind of be all over the scriptures tonight. And so this won't be like a typical night for me where we just kind of work through a paragraph in the Bible. Uh, We're going to go all over the scriptures, but I want you to just kind of circle, underline, highlight this one. Matthew chapter 6, if you have your Bible open, uh, and verse 24 says this. It says, no one, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then our Lord Jesus says this, you cannot serve God and money. You know what I think Jesus understood? The number one competitor to your heart, if you are trying to love God, is money. It's stuff. It's your income. It's your wealth. It's your shoes. It's your car. It's your phone. The number one competitor to your heart, if you are trying to love God, is money. Like I want you to understand that Jesus says you can't, he just didn't say you can't serve God and sex. He didn't say you can't serve God and the values of this world. See, Jesus has identified something that is in your heart and it's in my heart. It's in all of our hearts. That the two competitors for our heart and our soul will either be the God of the universe or the stuff he gave you. And Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. So here's what we're going to do tonight as an introductory message to the entire series. Um, This week, I'm going to introduce it. Next week, what we're going to do, uh, Pastor Brian Williams is going to talk about, he's going to talk about spending and investing and saving and kind of like, what do you do with the money you have? The week after that, I'm going to talk about debt. I'm going to talk about student loan debt, car debt, credit card debt, other kinds of debt you don't even know you have. Debt, okay? We're going to talk about debt that next week. And then the week after that, final week, right before Thanksgiving, we're going to talk about giving generosity uh, and how we give generously with our money. So that's the plan for the series tonight. Um, here's simply what I want to do. I want to ask you seven gut check questions about money. I'm going to ask seven questions tonight. And six of them might be totally irrelevant to you. But there might just be one that the Holy Spirit starts driving into your heart. And here's how you know the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. It's the time where you just kind of want to look at your phone and stop listening to the message, okay? Like that moment where you're like, no, 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 get out of here. Like that's the moment you need to pay attention. Like the moment you feel like I'm getting too personal. The moment you feel like I'm digging too much into your private life. The, The moment you think like this is a little too much and we shouldn't talk about this at church is the moment you need to listen to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. I'm going to ask you seven questions tonight. And here's what's probably going to happen. For a number of them, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian my whole, I know this, I know this. And listen, some of this is going to sound like common sense to you. Some of this isn't going to sound super spiritual or profound. But here's what I've always loved. There's a, there's a money, kind of a Christian money guy. Some of you know his name, Dave Ramsey. And he has this great quote when it comes to what he teaches. Here's what he says. He says, common sense is so rare nowadays that it's almost like a superpower, okay? And when it comes to money, Common sense is so rare that if you just have common sense, really what the scriptures teach, I promise you, you'll have a superpower when it comes to money, wealth, possessions, because the Bible has an awful lot to say about that. All right, let's jump in. I'm going to ask seven questions. And again, five of them might not apply to you. One might kind of apply to you and the seventh might just kind of wreck you tonight. So let's jump right into this. Number one, first question, do you own anything? Do you own anything? (laughs) Now, this is like a fair question, right? Sometimes sometimes I ask people questions 
And, and I'll ask him like a really simple question. And, and, and you got to know this about pastors. Uh, we meet with all kinds of people and sometimes people get around pastors and they get really nervous. And so I'll say something like a real basic question, like who created the world? And they'll be like, uh, uh, uh. And I'll have to be like, this is not a trick question. They're like, oh good, God. And then like uh, respond. Here's what I want you to know. This is a trick question. Because the immediate answer is I own all kinds of things, right? I own my shoes and my clothes. I own my car. Uh, I own my phone. Some of you are like, I own a house, right? You own all kinds of things. And yet here's where this is a trick question. Uh, like for the Christian, there should really be this other answer. And the other answer should be, yeah, I talk about owning stuff all the time. But if I'm honest and really truthful about who God is, I own nothing. There is nothing in this world I own. Nothing belongs to me. Everything belongs to God. Psalm 24 verse one says this, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So like the entire earth is God's. And just in case you were confused about that and everything that's in it is God's. So like that tree right there is God's. This stage right here is God's. This microphone is his, my shoes are his, my car that's over in the parking lot. It's all God's. And this is the approach to money that we must have if we're gonna make any progress in our spiritual lives, that we don't own anything and the God of the universe owns everything. This is the approach we have to have. We have to have the capacity to say, I don't own anything. I just get to use it for a little bit. When I was in college, I worked on a, a Christian summer camp that operated on houseboats. It was up in Northern California and we had this fleet of houseboats and we'd take groups, youth groups, high school, middle school kids out on the water for the week. And one of the disciplines that we had on that, on that camp was that every time we would refer to the houseboat, and I had the same houseboat all summer, it was like the boat that I was using all summer, I would never use the phrase, this is my boat. We would always talk about the boat. I would never say it's my boat because ultimately it's not my boat, it belongs to God. Now here's what I'm not trying to do. I'm not trying to be the Christian word police tonight where I'm like, where are your keys? You're like, right here. I'm like, got you, they're God's keys, right? Like, that's not what we're trying to do here. It's not to play semantic games. Like, like the goal here is to get you to recognize that everything you own or will ever own is on loan to you from God. And it's on loan to you for God for a specific purpose, and that is that you might take on a role. And that role is the role of a steward. Steward isn't a word we use in our culture a lot. It's not a word we use in our vocabulary or lexicon quite often. So let me define it for you. A steward is one who manages or looks after another one's property. A steward is someone who gets property from someone else and their job is to take care of it. It's like someone who lives at a mansion and they're the caretaker for the grounds, but they don't own the grounds. Child of God, if you call yourself a Christian, you need to recognize first and foremost that every dime you own, every car you'll ever have, every piece of clothing you'll ever put on your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God and your job is to take care of it for him. You're looking after someone else's property. And here's why this is so significant, because this will set up the entire rest of the series. Listen, I want you to remember that owners, an owner has rights. An owner is able to say, well, that's my thing. I get to do this with my thing. I get to do this with my car. I get to paint my house whatever color I want, because I own it, right? An owner has rights, but a steward has responsibilities. A steward has responsibilities. And see, if you think you own everything you have in this world, if you think you own everything that you have in your possession right now, if you think it is yours, you will deny any claim that God puts upon those things in your life because you think you own it. But the moment you become a steward, 
You say, I have responsibilities to use God's possessions in any way he sees fit. So someone needs to ride down to the airport. The owner goes, it's my car. I don't want to drive you down there. It's going to take like an hour to get to LAX and an hour to go through that stupid loop at LAX, right? I don't want to do that. But what does the steward do? It's God's car. God gave it to me so I could bless you. Of course, I'll give you a ride to the airport, right? Someone needs money. Someone needs help. You, you see a person in need, a family in need. An owner goes, well, it's my money and I worked for it. It's my thing. A steward goes, the fact that I could even work for it and have a healthy enough body and a sharp enough mind to make an income means that God gave me that gift. He didn't give it for me. He gave it so I could give it away to you. That's what a steward does. A steward says, I have responsibility before God with every dime that has ever come into my bank account. So the first question and I is, do you own anything? And of course, the natural kind of baseline answer, of course, I own things. But the Christian answer always below that has to be, I don't own anything. I'm a steward and everything I've ever owned or will ever own is on loan to me from God. Here's the second question. Second question, we'll shift gears. Do you think rich people are evil? Do you think rich people are evil? And I don't know how you define rich people. For some of you, rich people is like, they can go to Chick-fil-A every day during the week, right? Like that's amazing. They can afford like the large size meal. For some of you, like rich means they live in like North Ranch. Or the North, if you live in North Ranch, you're like, no, Sherwood's rich. And then if you're in Sherwood, you're like, no, the inner gates of Sherwood. That's like, everyone has rich, right? Do you think rich people are evil? And if you do, I, I wanna challenge you tonight with the biblical perspective that according to the word of God, rich people are not evil. People who have money are not evil. Uh, let, let me give you these scriptures and these are just, I'll kind of reference them. We'll go through them quickly. First Timothy 6.10 says, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You, you see that second part of that there? It says through this craving, some have wandered from the faith. Like I think Paul, even writing to Timothy, knows what Jesus said, where it's the main competitor to your heart. But don't miss how it starts. It's, it doesn't say the, that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. If you ever hear someone say that money is the root of all evil, be that guy and correct them, okay? Because we've gotten this really twisted up, that if you have money, you must be evil. If you have money, you must have stolen it. If you have money, you must have abused someone to get it. I'm not claiming that there aren't people who have done that or gotten their money in illegitimate ways. I'm just claiming that according to the Bible, it's not proof that they're evil. Well, let me give you another scripture, this time from Proverbs 13, 22. It says that a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. It's not to the next generation, but to the next, next generation. Like a good man is a grandfather who leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. And do you know the only way you leave an inheritance to the next, next generation, to your grandparents? The only way you do that is if you have a lot of money, if you are rich, if you have accumulated enough to leave an inheritance, not just to the next generation, but to the generation after that. Listen, I'm not up here tonight to comment on Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates to tell you what I think about them. Like, here's what I think. They're good people. I have no idea. Never met them. Don't know them. Here's what I do know. Some of the godliest men and women I have ever met are richer than you could possibly imagine. And some of the lousiest, most evil, selfish, narcissistic people are poorer than you, okay? <laughs> I, I mean that. And the inverse is true as well. So there's just no moral assessment when it comes to someone's wealth. Again, there might be wealthy people who are greedy, like Scrooge McDuck diving into their pool of coins, like horrible, awful people. And yet there are rich people here, like don't ever miss this. Like there are people who are wealthier than you could possibly imagine who give to this church that makes this possible. 
Okay, like if you think these lights are free, these sales are free, the stage is free, do you think this is all just happening? This is happening because there are wealthy people who give. If you think evil people are rich, you're going to have, or evil, yeah, no, no, sorry. Rich people are evil. Like, listen, you're going to have a real hard time in the family of God because God calls poor people together. He calls rich people together. Jesus confronts poor people. He confronts the rich young ruler and he invites everyone to come before God and use whatever they have for God and his glory. Here's the next question I want to ask. Um, Question number three, um, are you aware that you probably struggle with greed? Are, are you aware of that? Like, do you know that you probably do? I, I say probably as like that one little word that can get you out of it. And my, here's my fear that most of you are like, probably, okay, I don't. Like, that's not me. That's not me, right? Because no one ever thinks that. Like, again, as a pastor, I get to talk to a lot of different people. And you wouldn't believe the kind of things that get confessed to me. Things that are like tragic and horrible and awful. And then things that are like, wait, what? Like, come again? Like, there's just confessions that come in from all over the place. But this is like a classic pastor thing. You'll never find a pastor who has a slew of people coming to him confessing their greed. Like, pastor, I just need to get this off my chest. I'm really into myself and my money, and I'm very greedy. No one ever says that. No one's ever aware of that. But like greed is the easiest sin for you to miss in your life. Greed is the easiest thing for you to not see that it's present in your life. And you know the number one reason the people right here, all of you listening to me right now, listen, some of your financial situations might be like wild. Like you're making bank, you're rich right now, that's amazing. I'm speaking to most of you with the assumption that at your age and station in life, you are not incredibly wealthy. And that is one of the most dangerous places not to pay attention to greed. Because you can be poor and be as greedy as anyone else in this world. Like, here's what the scriptures say about greed. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus is talking and he says this to them. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetedness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. You see those words, be on guard? Like in other words, Jesus is going like, you need to have this kind of stance toward greed to be like, I need to make sure I'm not becoming greedy. Like to be on guard is to be alert, to be looking, to be making sure nothing sneaks in without you being aware. See, Jesus's assumption is that if you're not on guard against being greedy, against coveting things, against wanting to use all of your money for you, if you're not actively thinking about that regularly, if you're not journaling about it, if you're not talking about it in small group, if you're not making a point to think about greed, it'll sneak in the back door without you knowing. In Mark chapter four, Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling this parable, if you know this parable at all, of the seeds that get thrown into the ground. And some of them are snatched away and some of them grow up. But, but here's the idea. The seed of faith gets thrown into people. And here's, here's how Jesus illustrates this. He says, there are some people, others, who are like seed thrown among thorns. They hear the word, but don't miss this. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Do you notice how Jesus describes wealth? He doesn't say wealth ch- chokes it out. He says the deceitfulness of wealth. Like wealth is a liar. Money is a liar. It will lie to you. It will deceive you. You will start to believe that you don't need to be generous because you don't make this salary yet. And then you'll reach that place where you make that salary and you'll go, I'm still not going to be generous. Like there is such a capacity within you for greed. And if you're not aware that it's potentially there already festering inside of you, it will wreck you and you will become the person who is greedy his or her entire life and never realized it. Like you, are you aware that you probably struggle with greed and you don't even realize it? Do you talk about that? Do you think about that? Do you pray about that? Here's the next question, number four. I'll ask it this way. Is your November budget ready yet? Your November budget, right? 
where you sit down at the end of October and you try to figure out how much money is going to come in in November and what you're going to spend it on and you line everything out. You don't just kind of vaguely go, eh, I think I'll make this much and we'll see how it all goes. Like that's not a budget, right? Like the budget is when you sit down and think through November is coming and here's how much money I'm going to make and here's where I'm going to spend of it and every dollar gets spent on paper before it gets spent in reality. This guy I mentioned earlier, and I just fully recommend to you all his resources, everything on his website. Just go there, check him out, dig into him. Dave Ramsey, here's what he says. He says, a budget is telling your money where to go rather than wondering where it went. That's what a budget is. You sit down. I do this every month with my wife. We sit down. We put our money that is going to come in, and then we go, okay, how much is our mortgage? How much is our light bill? How much do we think we're going to spend on groceries and on diapers? How much are we going to spend on gasoline for our car? How much are we going to spend eating out and just enjoying the money that God's given us? We write this all down and we create a plan. And for some of you, that plan sounds like such a bummer. It sounds like, I don't want to create a plan because then it's going to cramp my style. I found the exact opposite is true. When you create a budget, you don't have to stress about money. Do you know I'm not worried about how much money is in my account right now? Because I've already planned out before October began when and where I'm going to spend that money. So I don't sit around stressed if like, okay, I'm going to swipe this card like the lucky swipe, like please come through, right? Like I don't do that because I know we, we made a plan for our money and the plan wasn't, okay, we're going to make this much and we're going to spend this much, right? We made a plan and we don't have to wonder where our money went. We planned where it was going to go. Jesus lays out this principle. He's illustrating something totally different or teaching on something different. But here's the illustration he says in Luke 14, 28. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough to complete it? And he goes on to teach about like your life and like knowing the cost. But like his assumption is like only a fool would try to build a house, but not like think about how much it costs. And you know what I think he'd say to us? Only a fool would live their entire life thinking I'll just kind of spend money if I have it and never really make a plan for it. I want you to make a budget. I think some of you have never made a budget in your adult life and now's the time. And again, please don't fall into the trap of like, once I have a real big boy job, then I'll make a budget. Once I have like a legitimate paycheck coming in, then I'll make a budget. You just make a budget. You go, how do I make a budget? Again, I'm just, just Google Dave Ramsey, okay? And then here's what I'm gonna say to you. I'm, I'm gonna say the dumbest thing we always say, okay? I love Dave Ramsey. I think he's amazing. And then here's what we always try to slide in sometimes. We're like, I don't agree with everything he says. This is not part of the sermon, but it's, it's extra. It's bonus. It's free tonight. Here, here's what I say. Can we stop saying that? You know why we say that? We get up in front of people who are like, here's the thing I like, but I don't agree with everything in it. That's like our way of hedging our bets to make sure no one's ever mad at us, right? Like, here's the reality. You can stop saying you don't agree with everything someone else says because there's no one you agree with everything they say. Listen, I don't, my wife doesn't agree with everything I say. I don't agree with everything I say. Sometimes I watch old sermons of mine, I'm like, no, right? <laughs> so stop saying that. Like, I like Dave Ramsey. I think he'll bless your life. I think it'll be great. Stop hedging your bets. So anyway, that was not part of the sermon, just extra. That's why things go long sometime. Um, right, here's the final question before we go on to the, the, the next uh, of the seven questions. Um, I, this, this kind of wrecked me a, a while ago. I want you to imagine you are the CFO of a major Fortune 500 company. If you don't know a CFO, it's the chief financial officer. I want you to imagine um, that you ran a Fortune 500 company the way you presently run finances in your own life. Yeah, yeah. Should you be fired? <laughs> oh, that sliced right through me the first time I heard that. I was like, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, I should be. I should be. And here's the trouble. Like, why would you take another person's company more seriously than your life? This one life God gave to you. 
Sit down, plan it out, make a budget. You know what you'll do in the first month? You'll make a budget and you'll fail. And then the next month you'll fail a little less than last time. And by month four, you'll really be on it. And by year two, you'll realize that you got a raise and you didn't actually get a raise. You just know where your money's going now. Make a budget for November. Here we are, end of October. November starts on Sunday. Make a budget as we go. And here's question number five for someone here. When you're talking about your walk with Jesus, do you mention your finances? Yeah, it got quiet because the answer is no, right? It got quiet because the answer is no. Like someone asks you, like, how are you doing with Jesus right now? What do we always answer? Well, yeah, I've been reading my Bible a bunch. And listen, if you know me at all, like, I'm the Bible guy, okay? Like, read your Bible. Or, or you go, here's how much I've been praying. Here's how much I've been showing up at church. Or on the negative side of the ledger, you're like, well, I haven't been doing this thing. And I haven't been doing this thing. And I haven't been doing that thing as much. You know, like you, you, you kind of list out the sins you're not doing and you talk about the spiritual things you are doing. And again, all of that is really good stuff. But if it's really true that there are 2,300, 2,350 verses on money and possessions in the Bible, shouldn't it make sense that at some point when we're in small group talking about how our spiritual life is going, that we talk about how we're spending God's money? Like, shouldn't we be doing that? And I'll be honest with you. I wrote down this question. It's like, yeah, I'm going to get them on this. And then I'm like, I don't do that. You know, like I don't, I don't talk about this. But, but here's what I wonder. Like, I wonder if next time someone asks you about your spiritual life, you can share about the Bible. You can share about prayer, church, small group, or your sin, and you're waging war against your flesh. Like, that's all good. But what if you brought up, you know what? I've been given more than I've ever given before. I've been thinking about my money and how I can strategically invest it in the things of the Lord, or, or even spend it on myself or my family, or actually be a blessing to people around me so that I can move forward in what God's called me to. I, I've been more thoughtful with my money. I used to just spend it recklessly, but now I'm being more thoughtful, and I feel like I really understand that God owns it. I'm responsible to run this for him because I'm a steward, not an owner. But like, I think that I'm actually, I might start changing your approach because, again, the main competitor to your heart, to God, is money. It's stuff. It's possessions. It's your shoes, it's your purses, it's your clothes, it's your phones, it's your cars. That is competing for God's attention in your life. And part of what we need to do when we're assessing our spiritual lives is have the capacity to say, listen, there's stuff that's competing for my attention, but I turned that down. I emptied the Amazon shopping cart and I don't mean I bought it all, I just emptied it, right? Because I don't need this stuff. But like, here's what the scripture says in Matthew 6, 21. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And don't get this mixed up and turned around. See, a lot of people read this and they go, oh, so if I love something, like my heart's in it, I'll give money to it. But it actually says the exact opposite. Like, do you know when you start putting money into something, you start loving it more? Do you know you do that because when you start putting money into something, that means you value it? But like, if you spent a ton of money on your car, your heart's gonna be wrapped around that car, right? Like, if you just see a random car, you might be like, oh, that's cool. But if that's your car, and someone's kind of in a park and they're getting a little close to it. Your heart is all messed up on that. Why? Because it's your treasure. You put your treasure into that. If you decide to invest in the stock market, suddenly this random combination of letters that meant nothing to you is now like, oh, it's up today. It's down today. Like your heart is attached to that. Why? Because you put your treasure in that. Wherever you put your treasure, that's where your heart goes. You know, the people who love this church most tend to be the people who give the most to this church. Like the people who love their families most tend to be the ones who are most generous with their family. That the people who love their neighborhood most tend to be the ones who invest in their neighborhood most. Like your heart will follow wherever you put your money. Here's what Billy Graham, uh, an evangelist now deceased and what the Lord said. He's just so powerful. He says, he says, give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I'll tell you where their heart is. And checkbooks aren't a thing anymore. I get that, right? You're like, give me five minutes with your online bank account. And like, you might be kind of embarrassed, but like, I'll know where your heart is, right? 
Like here's what I heard someone say recently, like your online statement for your credit card or your bank account, it is a theological document. It tells us what you really think of God. And if everything you spend is about you and your pleasure and your ease and your comfort, that tells me everything I need to know. But if everything I see or most of what I see, if I were to look at your account, is you giving and serving and being generous and setting money aside for your future, for what you're investing in. If I see walking in wisdom, I know what I need to know about your heart and about where your God really is. Here's question number six. I won't spend long on this. What are the money habits of your five closest friends? We're told often that you'll become like the people you hang around, right? Actually, the scriptures say it this way. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. And I love that it says, don't be deceived before that because everyone thinks they can hang out with foolish people, but not become foolish. And the Proverbs actually says that a companion of fools suffers harms. So like the idea is you don't have to be a fool to be harmed by one. You don't have to be a fool to get sucked into their foolishness. You can be a really wise, thoughtful, smart, grounded person and hang out with a bunch of fools and you can make really, really stupid decisions that can wreck your life. The people around you, you think about those people, how do they spend money? Do they always get the newest iPhone when it comes out? Do they always replace their car when it's just a couple of months or even a couple of years old? Like, believe me, you can drive a car for a long time, right? You can do that. Do they always spend money? Do they always go out to eat? Do they never really stop to think, okay, what's the best use of my funds here? Or, or, or do you hang around people who invest, who think about their future, who pay down debt, who are frugal? I'm, I'm not talking about stingy people who never want to spend money. I'm just talking about who do you hang around? Because over the next decade, you'll become just like how they spend money. You really will. I'm not asking you to be mean to anyone around you. I'm not asking you like right now during the sermon to be like you, right? Like you don't have to do that. But I just want you thinking like the people around me are gonna shape how I spend money. And if you think you won't spend money just like the people who surround you, that's why the scripture's up on the screen. Don't be deceived. Like don't be foolish enough to think you're the one. Like the scriptures say, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Little asterisks go to the back of the Bible and your name's there except you, right? That's not how this works. Don't be deceived. You'll become like the people you hang around. And here's the final question. Are you content with your current home, car, phone, and clothes? You good with them? You good with where you live? Some of you are like, it's with my parents. You good with that? <laughs> you good with your clothes? Or do you always need new ones? You're like, I just, I really, have, I have nothing to wear. And I've learned that for, for women, that means I have nothing new. And for men, that means I have nothing clean. Um, right? <laughs> um, right? It's like that. Like, I get it. Like, I've been there. I'm like, ah, okay, that one. Right? Um, but, but listen, like, like, are you good with your clothes? Are you good with your shoes? Are you good with your phone? Like, can I promise you something? Like, I'm, I'm going to speak to iPhone users because Android... I have no idea, and you should probably just get an iPhone. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I always make that joke. I, there's no reason for it. Um, but, but listen, iPhone users, like you just get sucked into, well, I, I have an iPhone, and it works perfectly. But then they came out with a one, and instead of two cameras, three, three. And I really needed the third camera. You got to have it, right? Three cameras. And you're just like, you're like, get sucked into that. And you're like, feel insecure. And everyone sits at the, you know, sit at dinner and everyone's got their phone on the table, but flipped upside down because you're courteous, right? And you have them upside down and then you feel insecure. You're like, I need to get the three camera one because why? Like, why? Like, here's what contentment is. Contentment is I'm good. Like if something breaks, I'll get a new one. If my shoes wear out, I'll get a new one. 
but I'm just gonna buy stuff and I'm gonna be content with what I have and I'm not always gonna need the next thing. I'm not always gonna buy the best car. I'm just gonna be content with what I have. The people who are happiest in this life, the people who are satisfied with this world and the people who do well with money aren't the people who make the most. They're the people who are content with what they have. They don't always need something new. They don't need the best apartment. They don't need the best house. They don't need the best car. They just need a car. I'm not telling you to go buy the car that like breaks down every time you get out of the parking lot. Like that's what I'm telling you to do. I'm telling you to get a car and drive it until the wheels fall off. Why? Because you just become content. Do you know how many people, and maybe some of you, deceive yourself into the car thing? The car thing's great because we always have this word. We're like, listen, uh, it's not that I want a new car. It's that I need something reliable. It's got to be reliable. You're like, re- reliability is a real big deal to me. And so you're like $60,000 in debt for some truck you have. And you're like, but it's very reliable. I'm like, yeah, you're reliably broke. That's what you are, okay? <laughs> when you have a car you can't afford. And I'm saying this tonight because for some of you, it has nothing to do with reliability or functionality or anything in your life. And has everything to do with you want more than you'll ever get. And here's what we see in the scriptures. What we see in the scriptures is Hebrews 13:5 says, keep your life free of the love of money. Again, not of money, of the love of it. And it goes on to say, and be content with what you had. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know why you can be content with what you have? Because God's with you and you have the greatest treasure of all. God's with you and he's never going to leave you. Like whatever car you have, whatever shoes you have, whatever house you live in, wherever you go, God's with you. It goes on in Ecclesiastes chapter five, verse 10. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. And whoever loves wealth will never be satisfied with their income. Like if money's the thing you think you need to be happy, you will never have enough. You make a hundred grand a year and you'll want 200. You make 200 grand a year and you'll want a million. You'll have a million dollar house and you'll want the $2 million house. Like there's no end to this road. If you've not noticed that, there's no end. Like right now in my professional life, I make more money than I dreamed of making when I was 18 because I had no idea what I was thinking. I was like, okay, like if I make five bucks an hour, that'll be great. Like I had no clue. But do you know how easy it is for me to be like, yeah, but if I had like a little more, I'd be happy. And and here's what's so obvious to us in the scriptures. Like once your basic needs are met, I mean like basic needs, like you have enough food in your belly, you have a place to stay, you have clothes on your back and you have enough medicine not to die. Once you have that, there's no more money that's gonna make you happy. Like the Bible is great. The Bible teaches this. And then like recent studies have come out where people are like, there's actually a certain threshold where people's happiness goes up with money and then they get the necessities and it just flattens out. And I'm like, the Bible thought of that before you. That's what I try to tell people. This is what the people of God have known forever. You making more money will never, ever make you happy. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher, um, said this. He said, you say, if I had a little more, I would be very satisfied. You make a mistake. If you're not content with what you had, you would not be satisfied if it were doubled. And I think that's true. If you're not content with your phone now, you won't be content with the next one. If you're not content with your clothes and your wardrobe now, you won't be content with upgraded stuff. Like I want you to think about that as you go into Christmas this year. I'm not saying don't like get stuff or don't buy stuff on Black Friday or don't ask for any like, mom, dad, I want nothing. You know, like don't, don't, you don't need to do that just to like be super spiritual. What I'm trying to say is be content with what you have. Like just be content with it. Understand that like what you have, if you're not happy with what you have, you'll never be happy with anything, okay? So here are the seven questions. We're not gonna put them on the screen. I'm just gonna rattle them off real quick, just as a reminder that you would kind of wrestle with one of these. Number one, do you own anything? Number two, do you think rich people are evil? Number three, do you, do you know that you probably already struggle with greed? Number four, is your November budget ready? Number five, when you're talking about your walk with Jesus, do you mention your finances? Number six, what are the money habits of your five closest friends? And number seven, are you content with your current home, car, phone, and clothes? 
Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about the questions I asked tonight. Maybe I said something tonight, just kind of struck you sideways. And again, if there's some sort of thing where you're like, oh, okay, so what, what, what business does this man have talking about my, he's meddling. The old, this is an old phrase in church. He, he, he stopped preaching and he started meddling. Like, like, like what, does that, what does that even mean, right? Okay, like that's the Holy Spirit of God telling you to think about something. Like, like, I don't know. I, like, I didn't get submissions about your life and then I happened to mention things tonight, okay? That's not how this works. Like, like you hear the word, you respond to the word, and then here's what we have in the book of James. Last scripture I'll read tonight. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I love this analogy. It's so powerful. Let me put it just slightly different than the way the book of James. I want you to imagine I'm getting dressed in the morning. I'm kind of looking and uh, I'm in my closet. I'm putting things together and I button my shirt and I do one of these and I feel good about it. Get into the bathroom and I look and I go, oh, (laughs) that's way off. That is incorrect. On with the day, right? (laughs) And then I go and I walk downstairs and I see my wife and I say, love you, honey. And she goes, Brian, your your shirt's kind of messed up. And you're like, I know. Listen, I saw it in the mirror. Real bad, right? She goes, yeah, why don't you fix it? I saw it, right? And then I go into work and I sit down at the first meeting and my boss is like, what, what's, wrong? like t- what, what's wrong with you? You're like, listen, I know all about it. I've thought about it. I've seen it. Someone else talked to me about it. And then you move on and you go into the next thing and you see someone, they're like, your shirt, your shirt, right? Like this would be absurd, right? Like why? Because you don't get points for looking in the mirror. You don't get points for noticing it. You get points for doing something with it. And here's the problem. So many Christians go through life and here's what they do. They hear a sermon and the sermon is all about prayer. And then they go back and someone's like, did you do anything about it? Have you been praying differently? And they're like, no, I just heard a sermon and it wrecked me. It wrecked me, just destroyed me. I am nothing eviscerated. But I'm good, I'm good. Then you hear a sermon about forgiveness and you're like, you should probably lay down your hate and anger and cruelty toward the person who hurt you. And you're like, oh, he said that's so good. And someone's like, so did you forgive her? And you're like, I heard it, I heard it, right? Here's my fear for some of you tonight. Something struck you sideways. Like you're thinking about money. You're going, oh, I actually have some work to do. You know the most terrifying thing is that you'll walk away tonight and be like, yeah, that was good, good stuff to think about. And someone sees you and they're like, well, did you make a budget? And you're like, I, I, I heard the word budget, you know? Or, or someone goes, you're like, did, are you just, did you remember the whole thing about being content? You probably don't need the next big thing that everyone has. And you're like, no, 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 I was, I was thinking about that. And the way he put it was real good, real good. That quote, mm, fire, right? Like that's what you do. You don't get points for that. You don't grow for that. Here's how you grow. You hear a sermon and the Holy Spirit convicts you and you do something about it. That's how you grow. So tonight, do something about it. Go home tonight and talk to someone. Talk to your family. Talk to your roommates. Talk to your best friend. Think about this. Pray about this. Do work on this. Journal on this. Why? Last phrase, because money matters when it comes to following Jesus. It matters. It's not irrelevant. And it matters that you become the type of person who says, my money is something that will either compete for my heart with God or something I will subdue, I will put in submission so that everything can be given to the God who gave me everything in the first place. That's your challenge tonight. Let the Holy Spirit do his good work in your heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thanks for tonight. Thanks for your word. Thanks for the different ways it talks about money and finances and stuff and possessions. God, I wanna be the first one on stage tonight to repent of the ways I've been selfish with my money, of the ways I've not considered you, of the ways I've considered myself an owner rather than a steward. 
kind of want to acknowledge the ways I've been foolish with money. I spent money without thinking. God, I want to confess the ways I've been stingy and not given. God, I pray for the person here who just has like work to do with their money and maybe their financial life's a mess with debt and things they owe and ways they can't work and all sorts of issues with coronavirus. I get it. It's a mess here. And yet out of the mess, you bring good things. Out of the, out of the ashes, you bring something beautiful. And so God, I pray tonight as we start thinking about money for the next couple of weeks that you would convict our hearts and most importantly, we would do something about it. God, come meet us here even as we worship so that you might be exalted above all things, that we might declare as the psalmist that the earth is yours, God, and everything in it. And that includes our hearts. We give them to you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.